0: The Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print, and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org radiohour.
1: And welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co host, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. So, on this week's show, I have a conversation with Philip B. Williams about his debut novel, Hours.
0: Huh, I wasn't on this interview with you and I have heard nothing about this book. So tell me all about it.
1: So it's a complicated story, but basically ours follows the story of a conjure woman named Saint. Wait, what is a
0: conjure woman?
1: Oh, a conjure woman is a person who uses conjure, so magic, to kind of like create effects in the real world.
0: Okay, okay.
1: So one of the magical feats that she pulls off is basically she, so this is right around the time, it's in the time of slavery, and then it kind of moves on slightly past emancipation. And basically what Saint does is she goes around and she liberates slaves from plantations. And then she creates a community called ours that through magic, she makes it invisible to the outside world. So it creates this kind of potential utopia in which like these liberated slaves can live and they're kind of free from the encroachment and violence of like white tormentors. It's a fascinating novel that kind of blends. It's, it seems very much like Toni Morrison, but it's also like Octavia Butler in some ways. Like It's really, really fascinating. And more than anything, I think it gets to several very fascinating psychological portraits of how one comes out of an experience like slavery and also how communities both bind each other together to protect each other, but how that kind of protection can also become like a form of control that like the community chafes against.
0: Mm, Wow, that sounds really good.
1: All right, well, I I won't try to preface it any more than that because there's a lot that Philip and I get into in this conversation. So we'll just get right to it. Great. Excited to have Philip E. Williams with me on the show today. Philip is the author of two collections of poetry, Thief in the Interior, which won the Kate Tufts Discovery Award and a Lambda Literary Award, as well as Mutiny, which won a 2022 American Book Award and was a finalist for the Penn Volcker Award. Philip joins me today to talk about his latest book and debut novel, Ours. The sprawling story of the eponymous Missouri town where African slaves liberated by saint, the conjure woman at the center of the novel, make a life for themselves and future generations while struggling to manage the trauma of the past and the uncertainty of the future. Saint uses her magical powers to protect the town from the threat of white violence that surrounds Black lives beyond the borders of ours. But as her powers falter and her all-too-human emotions threaten her relationship with the townspeople, what starts out as a liberationist utopia begins to feel like another kind of bondage as the decades wear on. By the end of Philip's magisterial and moving novel, we have seen relationships take shape, be destroyed, and be resuscitated, seen characters confront not only the tortured memories of the past, but also the selves they are still trying to understand. We've seen how love contorts itself into control, and then again into the demand for radical freedom. We've seen fearsome magic and godlike power channeled through the vicissitudes of human desire and all too human frailty. Ours, ultimately, then, is a tale of human characters learning how to heal, how to be free, and how to be with one another. Welcome to the show, Philip. It's a pleasure to have you.
2: I am so excited to be here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the kind of historical sweep of Ours. So it starts, well... The action actually starts virtually in the present, I think, in like the 2020s, but we're, we're not going to talk about the frame story thus far. But really, the action of the novel starts around the 1830s, and then it kind of ends for most of the art characters in 1872. So can you talk a little bit about this period, which obviously straddles the Civil War and emancipation and the beginnings of Reconstruction and kind of in the center of it, a kind of grand social experiment of like, through magical intervention, these slaves are freed, and then they get a place that is their own, where they're protected. And so I just am curious, kind of, what about the time and the kind of ideas came to you, you know, as you were working on it?
2: I wanted to start the story at the point where the institution of of slavery was on its way out, but was also in what some would argue its bloodiest. There were documents that I'd been reading, documents isn't the right word, but just research, different articles I was reading about how lynching became most prevalent around that time, the late 1800s, really, you know, when the emancipation... Proclamation, the 13th Amendment was passed. We had all of these issues of instances of violence and hundreds and hundreds of cases just across a few years that they didn't experience in the 1600s, or at the very least, that kind of violence that led to death by mob. You know, in the 1600s and 1700s, there wasn't really a response like that to any kind of fear of revolt. I wanted there to be the pinnacle of fear. The potential for that, the potential for the violence to be so exasperated that them, the characters that lived in ours, not experiencing that means that much more. that the stakes were high in a way where that we call it, you know, potential utopia meant that much more. And I also wanted to cross into the civil war and then just have a little period after for us to see, you know what is the potential of something like that surviving.
1: And, you know, before we talk about Saint, you know, which I I definitely want us to get to, I want to talk about a few of the other characters that really moved me as I was reading the novel. So the first kind of, I guess, dyad in a way would be the relationship between two, they start out in the book as children, they are men by the end of the book, Luther, Philip and Justice. And just for the other thing I should say for listeners is there is really, as Philip and I were talking about before the show, there is no way to talk about this novel in any real way without giving away some spoilers. So what I'm hoping is that we mostly are talking about thematic threads throughout the text, but again, we will be talking about some developments in relationships that if you do not want that to be spoiled, just put a pin in it, come back to this conversation later, and pick it up then. But so, Luther Philip is the son of a man and a woman known as Mr. and Mrs. Wife. Mrs. Wife, through... It's complicated, but Saint is not able to save her. Saint is seen as somebody who can save anyone because she has these magical powers, and Mrs. Wife dies, and that leaves Luther, Philip, and his father on their own. Meanwhile, another boy in ours, Justice, his parents, Honor and King, both die. This one is kind of more Saint's fault because she didn't really (laughs) understand a particular or she wasn't... Careful about how she let a particular conjure go on. And that ended up in the result of Justice's parents and also nearly the death of, of Justice himself. But so these two boys kind of form along with Mr. Wife a family of their own and they become extremely close. And as they grow older, kind of justice feels Luther Philip pulling away and that causes lots of anger and animosity for him. But before I front load it too much, (laughs) because this was was a, a relationship that I think it's like in some readings, and we'll talk about how queerness operates in this novel. I think in some readings, you could give this a kind of queer valence that like justice has this, more-than-a-friend desire for his best friend. But I think also at the heart of it, these are two boys, later two men, who really only have one another in this world, or like the other is the only one that can understand each of them. So can you just talk a little bit about these characters and kind of what you were exploring in their relationship as it develops across the novel?
2: Ooh, that's a big one. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. It's it's very complicated and beautiful. I think this reading about this relationship caused me to cry the most during a mm. book that made me cry several times.
2: Well, it's a rich... What they're trying to do is what any of, any of us who desire human connection try to do, which is build something that is not only sustainable, but it feeds you. And they had not been... Speaking to Mr. and Mrs. Wife, they had not been, let's say, properly fed. The institution of slavery doesn't feed anyone in any capacity. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter if the food is free, if, you know, you can go hunting on your quote-unquote free time. And so there's an emotional instability that, that happens when your family's always at the threat of being sold off or being murdered off. And so in this town they have the opportunity for the first time to create and sustain and build a kind of agency where they can rename themselves whatever they want they can choose whatever house they want to live in if they want to work they can work if they don't they don't all of this is early in the book so this isn't spoiling anything and that is part of that first generation's journey to understanding what freedom means to them their children do not have that experience and so they have to on their own figure out what freedom means to them outside of the institution of enslavement while living with and learning from folks who are also learning what freedom means from them post trauma of having been enslaved and so there's a there's a distinction to be made between how generation 1 and generation 2 and generations thereafter are building intimacy and the level of intensity and the level of proximity that they have when they're building these bonds because it's for the first time and there's no model in this particular way where it can't be interrupted.
1: (laughs) That actually takes physical form for Justice. I mean, this is also an emblem, I think, of the trauma passed down from one generation to the next, that his, one of Justice's dark secrets, as it kind of is revealed We know it earlier on in the novel, but he doesn't reveal it to others until later, is that his parents actually branded him on the inside of his leg. And I believe the justification that the novel provides for that is that, one, they are very traumatized by the experience of slavery. And they are, even though they are living in a place that guarantees them security, though not always, they are constantly afraid, it seems to me, of their family being taken away or losing their child, and that what they have seen is that in newspaper reports, strange markings on someone's body might be commented on, and so if their child ever were taken away, they might be able to find him through this. But it's also a very brutal thing that they've done to him towards the end when he's trying to repair his relationship not only with himself, but also obviously with Luther Philip. Justice tries to cut this brand out because he feels that it's something that makes him... He uses the word, I believe, like, makes him an animal. It's a very dark part of the book, but it's also, I think, where you see the fusion of, like, trauma and love at the same time.
2: At the same time, yes. And him wanting, needing to cut that brand was him trying to figure out how to love himself. You know, there's the implication that to be... Branded is to be animal. And of course, there are different rituals that do not support that idea at all. The brand is something that, when done with permission, (laughs) you know, can symbolically mean, you know, a connection between, you know, people who are not actually kin, but now you have a kinship or a rite of passage has been, has taken place. But with them, it was absolutely a response to, if we were to lose him and someone were to find him, they would say this marking was on him in this location. And so what they're doing is they're not trusting the process, so to speak. They're not believing that even though the safety that they have, that has been secured for them by someone who is incredibly powerful and has proven it time and time again, even though they have that as evidence, they understand a human being has given them that. It's not part and parcel of just existing So if a human can give it to you, another human or the same human can take it away. (laughs) And so to them, it doesn't really matter that the institution of of slavery, that enslavement has ostensibly ended permanently in their lives. What they know is this is how we protect what we love. And that doesn't go for everyone. It's just for them in particular. They can't release that history.
1: Let's also talk about Franklin and Thylas. So Franklin is like, it's complicated to use these terms because it didn't quite exist as part of the consciousness back then. But Franklin, I think we would describe as being gay. And he has a relationship with a woman named Thylas who he lives with. And I think she also kind of knows eventually Franklin goes to, a. there's a nearby Town that becomes important for other reasons that we can't give away for spoilers. But there's a man there named Foster who Franklin meets in the woods, and they have a relationship until Franklin kind of goes away and Foster finds another person. But I was very interested in this relationship between... Franklin, this is a spoiler, but it's something that I think speaks to his relationship with Tylus is that he commits suicide, because he's aggrieved over the loss of this of this one love that he had with Foster. It's maybe more complicated than that. There's other things that he's processing too. But Thylius really mourns him. I mean, and it's it's that this is not a, it's not a romantic relationship in a kind of sexual way, but it is a romantic relationship in almost every other way. So I'm just curious if you can talk about the kind of changes that those characters go through and what you were trying to do with that kind of dyad.
2: Absolutely. Silas and Franklin, in my writing of them, I didn't want them to have a romantic relationship, though And I think we might be using these words uh, similarly. They have a very intimate relationship. Their closeness is one of absolute trust. And it is because what they were paired off to do when they were on the plantation was so vile, and it never gratefully, it never happened. They were saved before they were forced to to do that. But Franklin thereafter was like, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be a guardian to you. We're gonna to stay together. We're gonna to look out for each other. And uh, that's the linkage that they have. The intensity of their relationship is founded on the fact that they were paired to be destructive to one another and ended up deciding against that. It was a decision to do that. And so when Thileas is mourning Franklin, what she's also mourning is her first friend and also the longest parental figure that she's had. They become equals as she ages, but she's enraged because she's lost so much and no one else is willing to grieve with her and she doesn't get it. And so what I wanted to really, you know, bring to light is that there's sometimes a way where Again, this is about isolation and being alone. The book is really heavily about loss. How do we take care of each other? How do we help each other have grieving ceremonies when finally, and during this time period, when at last we are not property, when we can actually do these things? And I keep saying uninterrupted because I think of slavery and I think of the Middle Passage and I think of Jim Crow. All of these were interruptions of The pleasure, the beauty, the intellectual capacity that, you know, Black people have in the country. This is the moment where all of these things can be put on the table and we say, look at them. How do we sort through this trash? And where do we find the gems? Do we find the gems in ourselves or do we find in the collective? The answer is both. And that couple is a way of exploring that dyad of needing self and needing privacy, but also needing to get out of that privacy and have a support system Mm -hmm. in the community.
1: The last couple that I wanted to talk to you about was... Well, there's three of them, actually. They're not mm-hmm. really a couple either, but two of them eventually <laughs> are. Is So there's Francis and Joy, who come to, they come into ours, and it's already, their arrival is a bit of a sign that Saint's powers are fading, because the part of the, the deal with ours is that it is rendered through her conjure magic invisible to the outside world, so they can't be chased by slave catchers, they can't be, invaded, at least in the beginning of the novel, but that also people can't just walk into ours. So not only will they not see it, but they're kind of misdirected because of the power of saint's magic that protects it. But Francis and Joy are able to kind of pierce through the veil and walk right into ours, and they have powers of their own. Francis is an amazing character. I mean, I I don't want to say she, because Francis answers to both. She is also a he, but one of Francis's powers is that any violence that is aimed at Francis's body gets revisited on the person who is trying to do violence to them. So, for example, when she there's many situations in which she's being shot at by men who then find their own bullets piercing their own flesh, which is, it is really wonderfully described in the book. And Joy also has a different kind of power, but neither of them and this is the the other big thread in the novel, which is the problem of memory. So Frances, especially towards the end of the book, she her people are from or she is from the water, which is clearly a reference to the middle passage and the violence of the middle passage. But Francis kind of doesn't understand. she doesn't know why her power exists. She doesn't know where it comes from. She does have some more formal knowledge of conjure work. So she has that. She knows in some ways how to channel it, but her past is basically a complete blank to her. And Joy is similar. Joy remembers being helped by two women who become important later, and that would be a spoiler, so I won't give that one away. (laughs) And then there's the third character is Abba, who is eventually he and Joy end up together. But Abba is really kind of on his own. He also has a magical power and is trained, or I guess we would say like studied in how to use it or the kind of operation of it. So can you talk a little bit about how these characters at once, all of them in their own way, challenge Saint enormously and kind of help her to grow herself by the end of the novel, but they also sort of speak to a kind of resistance within the town to kind of saints' control.
2: Yeah, and they're the main ones. (laughs) (laughs) The main three. I'll start just a, a little bit early if we go back to the writing of the novel itself. I couldn't do it because for a long time, Francis was the core, but Francis was a man, And uh, I was stuck, and I was stuck not because there was something just innately wrong with his existence as in that iteration, but there were no flaws. He was too powerful in the way that people fear Saint is, and what ended up happening is Saint, the version of her from the short story, really demanded more attention. And I remember there was an interview that Toni Morrison did where she <laughs> expressed that Pilot from Song of Solomon had become too loud and she needed to <laughs> let her know that it wasn't her story. In a way, Saint had become very loud and I acquiesced and said, okay, let's see what, let's see what it's like in your hands. And because she had flaws, she was not omnipotent in that way and so those three characters really (laughs) you know allowed me to push her to grow because they understand and know what buttons to push that belong to saint they even reveal the fact that she has buttons to push in in the first place in a way that is different from how justice does it and in, in my opinion justice is probably one of the biggest the biggest catalyst for Saint to get her stuff together. Oh,
1: that's right because he tries to kill her at like yeah. in the early part of the novel. very early um, in the novel. yeah.
2: <laughs> and he's only a child. And so just from there, Saint you know understands that she needs to do things differently, but she also is of a personality. I'll say where to do things differently means that she still has to be in control. And those three characters, Joy, Abba, and Frances, are not at all interested in her having control.
1: Well, so that's a natural segue that we should talk now about Saint. So she is, on the one hand, the woman and the force that sets the whole story in motion and she's kind of guided in the account of the novel she's guided by the voices of of spirits but also the sounds or the the voices of the enslaved that kind of draw her to places where people are crying out inside you know either silently or vocally to be freed and she frees them she then makes a home a kind of magical home for them in the town that they call ours but She's also, as you're suggesting, she's a kind of hard character to warm up to because very early on in the creation of Hours, she separates herself from the townspeople. So there's a clear distinction between the protector, the protectress, and the people. And that is the thing that I think loving for reasons that we can't give away is quite difficult for Saint to do. I think that there's in many ways in the novel, she is quite afraid of loving someone, both because of the trauma of slavery, that anything you love could be ripped away from you, but also, I think, because there's the feeling that, like, for her is not to have love. Like, for her is to protect other people, even if that might be an act of love. And then, as you're saying, you know, kind of when these people resist, she kind of starts to seem less like, a benefactor and more like a prison warden? You know, like there's this (laughs) other form of bondage where it's like you have to do what she says. You only come and go from hours basically at her will, right? Like, so she has to allow you to do that. So then you have these kind of, within freedom, you have all these unfreedoms. But let me, well, let me stop, because there's just so many things (laughs) that are front-loaded about her. Just talk about Saint and that, because she is such a beautiful and complicated character so just where did she come from how did she develop as you were writing and what do you want readers to take away from her as a character
2: Well first thank you for reading her with so much love and reading the book with with so much love that is ah, because saint is someone who can be easily judged mm-hmm. and in being and is judged ju- and is judged <laughs> yeah. you know um quite a quite a bit. But she's someone who, as I was writing, there were a few characters in the book, and because my process of writing is to just go free. There's no the, the outline didn't work. So I'm just writing and writing and writing. And someone would decide to do a thing, and I sit and look at the computer and say, Are you sure this is what you want to do? And nothing else will come. And I would continue it. Saint is the force of she's a force of nature in many ways she you know in order for her to continue to be in her mind a successful guardian she has to separate herself from people so that their love for her doesn't contaminate she sees it as being a kind of contamination it because it becomes risky love is unpredictable if there's anything more unpredictable than freedom, it's love. <laughs> and she's very knowledgeable about how passion and obsession and loyalty and need and needing to rely on someone else can. There's a way where once you soften up, your defenses drop. She absolutely cannot allow that to happen. And in writing, Saint, it was very important to me that she didn't come off as someone who was unlovable, who was bitter, who was angry for no reason. No, she's just is very complex and she's very strict about how she regiments her life and has partitions. And this is how this goes. This is how this goes because she's experienced so much Pain after things have been disorganized. She's experienced so much pain because of her own ignorance, her own lack of understanding of what it is she can do. You know, when she loses essence, that is a, a huge pain that follows her throughout the, the rest of the novel. Love hurts. And when love hurts, it disallows you to focus on what needs to be done, which is, I'm freeing these people. They need to stay free. And that's it. And I just love her because she chooses to pick what is to her the bigger picture versus her own happiness.
1: You're listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Philip B. Williams, author of Hours. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation.
0: Happy to have Lucy Sant with me today. Lucy Sant is the author of many books, including I Heard Her Call My Name, A Memoir of Transition, and she's here to give me a book recommendation.
3: I'm often asked to supply the names of great transgender material, books everybody knows who knows. Nevada by Imogen Binney is a great name, a great book, and Histories of the Transgender Child by Jules. Gil Peterson is a great book. But my my favorite trans memoir, I think, is out of print, and that is April Ashley's Odyssey. April Ashley was a British trans woman, grew up in the 40s and 50s, came out in the 50s, went to work on the Riviera in Paris clubs. She was married a baronet and was not outed until their very public divorce in the mid-sixties. And she died just a couple of years ago, a gold dame, truly. And her book is the funniest trans memoir you'll find. It's not a subject that's attracted a lot of humor, but it's Her book is, she's a sharp observer. I don't know how good a writer she was because it's ass-told too, but she's got all the observational and verbal skills. And uh, her view of what being trans was like 60 or 70 years ago is pretty amazing. So maybe some enterprising small publisher will be in the mood to reissue this. April Ashley's Odyssey.
0: And will you tell us the author one more time?
3: April Ashley.
0: Thank you so much. That sounds Great. I hope as well that that will be reissued. Thank you so much, Lucy.
3: Sure. Thank you, Kate.
0: That was Lucy Saunt. Her new book is called I Heard Her Call My Name, A Memoir of Transition.
1: You're listening to the Large Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Philip B. Williams, author of Hours. There is also a saint, which is a little bit distinct from the other characters. You mentioned Essence. So Essence is a uh, she Choctaw?
2: No, she's a maroon, so there's a mix of things happening, but she's more like African-based maroon.
1: Okay, so she's a maroon— And she finds uh, Saint very early on in Saint's story. We don't get it until, I think, maybe like a quarter of the way through the novel. But she finds her, she tells Saint, and this is related to my question, which is why I'm prefacing it, but she tells Saint that something is locked up. There's a power that is locked up in her and that essence will be able to unlock it. But when she begins to unlock it, and there's Saint, for example, her emotions— change weather patterns. There's whenever she gets really angry or there's a moment of like extreme emotional intensity, she can cause lightning to kind of come down and and hurt people, which is why Essence, who at the time is that she's helping Saint is pregnant, says on the one hand unlocks her and then rejects her, like pushes Mm -hmm. her away to say (laughs) that I need you to go away because you're a danger to me and to my People. So the point that I'm trying to get to is that Saint also doesn't, she has this incredible power and she knows kind of what she needs to do from having read certain books. But unlike the other characters, she has no formal religious or esoteric practice. So, like Francis will say, You don't even have an altar. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you know? And there's another character, Aurora, later on in the book who says, You know, who was the saint sees the figure of a spirit in a woman who dies uh, it actually in Mrs wife as she's dying and she doesn't know who this person is and aurora points out that she's like you don't know any of these spirits like you don't know what you're dealing with these incredible forces and you have no idea about any of the cosmology or, like, how to work it. So, can you talk a little bit about that, like, saints, for lack of a better word, like, her kind of, as a magical savant, you know, like, she doesn't know (laughs) how she does it, she just does it. And is that a risk for her? Is that something that actually puts things in danger, the fact that she doesn't have an organized system, she doesn't have a value system in which to enfold her acts of magic? It
2: points to the nature the necessary nature of creating one's own ceremonies. So it's not that Christianity, because it existed, because it is the way that it is, assisted with helping people survive mentally, emotionally, through enslavement. It's that in the book really questions this idea that however one receives God is correct or healthy or helpful. It's that once the Word, with a capital W, was received... What was done with that was made revolutionary, was made emancipatory. And so Saint has to figure out, whatever it is, it can be something that is already historically structured, it could be something that is part of an already created community. She has to figure out for herself, what are my ceremonies? What are my beliefs? And how do I just follow through with that? That is her problem. Her problem is that she's just floating. And because she's just floating, there's nothing to anchor her to focus into herself and her own abilities and her own needs. She didn't even know that she preferred weeds over flowers until she created the altar. That was for herself, because she couldn't create an altar for God she didn't believe in. She didn't even know their names. They would have betrayed her. (laughs) You know? And so there's the argument also in the book, which is you have to have designated for yourself time to cater to your needs, and time to create a resource, an inner resource that is spiritual. It can't always come from the outside. You're not gonna always remember things that have been structured in a particular way that don't fit your personality. She had to create something for herself that would sustain her, that would allow her to hone into her abilities and without doing that she becomes immensely dangerous <laughs> incredibly to everybody everything even the landscape
1: yeah i wonder if also part of the the lesson with saint is it's not a lesson of judgment because one of the things that i also really love about this novel is that it never it loves all of its characters and it really doesn't judge them because they are coming out of they're in in a moment of incredible like mental spiritual and historical transition and so saint i think her challenge is also not to be reactive and to instead be like okay well what And this is a question many of the characters ask is like, what do I want? And I know that a a huge part of that is that they have come out of a situation in which they had no choice for what they wanted, where the question of what I want was irrelevant, you know, because you're in bondage. But it seems that also that has created a situation in which it is with Saint particularly, it's pure reaction, right? So, there's she has difficulty, in fact, not just as a conjurer, but like as a human being, like seeing the future because she is so consumed with like the pain of the past, which she will not answer or address, and then the crisis always of the present, (laughs) which like there is no peace for her. It is all crisis. So, I wonder if like, is that something that you think grips the town or is Saint kind of the locus of crisis that like others like Abba, like Francis, like Joy are trying to move out of?
2: Crisis is an interesting word because it's not, even within the context of the novel, it doesn't solely belong to slavery. There's a crisis of the blizzards that happen. Saint's problem is that everything, not only is everything a crisis, but every crisis requires the absolute ultimate decision. <laughs> no, there's no in between with her. And again, it's useful that she recognizes this about herself but it doesn't assist with the relationships that she has to maintain with those who have no choice but to live with her. (laughs) Like, they have to be beneath her heel. Everyone else in town, what they're trying to do is, when they have a crisis, discover many very beautiful, imaginative ways to support one another. And when they can't do that, then how do they... Surrender to that in a way where it was still a decision to have done so. They weren't forced to surrender. They weren't forced to run. There are even hints throughout the novel that for some of those whose history involved being enslaved, they were having romantic relationships. They were building families. They were doing things in secret on a plantation. So they still exercised selfhood and they still exercised a kind of social life, but it was within the realm of being capital. And that is a Different conversation, a heavier one than we have time for. But, you know, when they get the opportunity to be amongst one another, when they are confronted with the crisis, they, in my opinion, very quickly figure out together how to solve that issue. And Saint is working by herself all the time. She won't even accept help from people who've been doing it for just as long, if not longer, then she's been doing it because the abolitionist she refuses to listen to. And so, again, the community, individuality. So crisis, when you have a group, when you have kinship, can be muted a bit. But when you're on your own, everything has been escalated, has been elevated, because you don't have anyone else to bounce
1: ideas off of or to rely on. I've seen the kind of the book described as magical realism, you know, out there. And there's a very interesting, (laughs) there's that wonderful Toni Morrison interview that it made me think of where she was kind of rejects, how does she say it? She's like, that basically, magical realism, to use that term, is a label that covers up the sensibilities, experiences, and ways of knowing for Black people that are and were, in her writing, a direct expression of the experience of black cultural life. So I'm curious how you relate to that term and how you would describe the use of magic and conjure in ours.
2: It is realism,
1: <laughs> ok. yeah. well, and that's what she, that's also what she said. She's like, it, it is, is realism that has been rejected, but it is a realism nonetheless.
2: Yeah, because it doesn't follow the Western notions of what is scientific, what is industrial, what is, you know, what can, and really the foundation of all that is can I make money off it? And if you don't understand it, of course you cannot. <laughs> I do not call my own work magical realism. I do not feel offense when people call my work magical realism. I do often refer to my own work as surrealist and not in the way where the with surrealist the French where you would use it but in the way where I'm thinking of what does it mean to have an understanding or a vision of reality that is so much out of reality's context that it becomes magical it becomes mythical or seen as surrealist because it is beyond what reality has said is possible and so we can think of any activist any abolitionist as being a surrealist thinker Because in their mind, they are using their imagination at such lengths that it puts into question what is even, what can reality even contain? Reality has to shift so that surrealism becomes a new reality. So for me, what I am writing is a realistic work that once believed in and understood within its historical context, sustains itself. It doesn't need to be (laughs) part of anything that is quote unquote, tangible. It is empirical, and I'll wrap this up because I think, too, this is leading to something else, where what I experience or what Black people experience, what African diasporic people experience, those experiences are discounted. So that isn't even considered to be part of reality. What does it even mean to have empirical knowledge in the Black body? And it is really important to me that the magical and fantasy elements are also not just, but also seen as a true way of life.
1: To kind of keep drawing on the Morrison thread, which I I kept thinking of throughout reading this book, in Beloved, Morrison gives us, among many other things, this idea about re-memory, right? So the idea that the past is constantly piercing the present, and often in moments when we might least expect it To do so or when we are at least capable of handling that eruptive force. And it seems to me that this is what many of the characters in ours experience as well. They have a past that is saturated in trauma or sometimes mystery caused by trauma that has to be, in Saint's case, has to be contained if it's not to undo them. But so for characters like Saint and Francis does this too, kind of controlling or forestalling the eruption of the past into the present seems to be the only way that they can really get through their lives day to day. But for others, like Franklin, for example, we were talking about earlier, confronting the past seems to be, there's a moment in Franklin's past where his trauma is that he feels responsible for the death of a boy that he was very close with. He is not responsible for that. Like, the violence of slavery is responsible for that. And also inter-community violence. But it seems for him that confronting his past is the only way that he can experience wholeness, right? Even if that wholeness, in some ways, may end up destroying him. So I'm curious kind of how your characters or how you think, how they relate to the past and how you want them to relate to the past. Like, what's at stake in memory for these characters and whether or not you, like, how you feel about the idea of re-memory?
2: A lot of those characters have to find for their own mental health (laughs) ways to, and this is really important to Thyleas, because she says that you, she wanted to make her grief Her pain known to others, but they can they can only feel what they feel. She can't transfer her exact feelings into other people. And she wanted them to know that. And it's so important for the past to be known, not to be dealt with. Like I've hear I've heard that a lot. But you have to deal with your past. We have to sit with it and find understanding in it and also connect to it so that you can disconnect from it in a way where. It's, I wish that wouldn't have happened, I wish that hadn't have happened, I want this to be, because that's where the trauma really finds its power, is in the regret, and the shame, the guilt, and the idea that it could have been better, it should have been better. The fact of the matter is, you are in the present tense, the past has given you a system, or... or I wanna use a strange word because my my words are twisted, a crevasse of knowledge, a <laughs> kind of bowl <laughs> of knowledge to, to dip into and learn from and use to help other people. And Franklin can't do that because Franklin has kept it all to himself. Thileus can do that because she's condemning everyone for not assisting her in her grief to begin with, knowing that, you know, he was Franklin was a really important part of that town. And so memory surfaces when people are on the verge of, of growth in the book. Now, whether they accept it or not, that decides if they're going to transition from powerlessness into, into power. Rememory, in a way, I think Francis and Thylius have that the most because their memories actually take them over. At some point in the book. But yeah, my so my relation to rememory is to be is to honor Morrison's craft work of rememory. I'm not thinking of it as a social ideology or that's not really exactly how I want to a way of thinking about life or a way of thinking about memory, though I think that it is a, it is a way of doing that. But I, I'm using it strictly as a craft element. How are the characters overtaken by their experiences in such a way that it it's palimpsest or maybe even erases what their contemporary moment is.
1: I want to talk about queerness in the novel. Sometimes, as we've been talking about already, that seems like the right word to use, <laughs> as with like Foster and Franklin, maybe with the character of Francis. But at other times, you know, I wondered if I was reading too tendentiously. I mean... Spoiler alert, I'm gay, so it's like I am also looking for that
2: sometimes.
1: (laughs) But but the, the concern for me about reading tendentiously is that I think sometimes maybe by doing that, I'm reading in a way that is distorting what are so often really stories about two or possibly more people that are trying to heal themselves and support one another. So I'm just curious to hear you talk about queerness in the novel. I mean, the other thing I, I quite appreciate it, where it is very clear, and I'm not, you know, reading tendentiously, is that it is very matter-of-fact. It's not a thing that Franklin may judge himself for this, but it does not appear to me, at least, that, like, other characters in the town, not necessarily in the past, but in the town, don't appear to judge it. Francis's kind of non-binary existence is not a thing that seems to cause an issue for anyone. I mean, there's many other issues that she causes for other people, but it's like, (laughs) that, that is not the one. So, yeah, can you just talk a little bit about queerness for the characters, what that might mean or not mean, and kind of how you see it circulating in the novel?
2: So, I had this discussion with my agent, Bill Clegg, shout out to Bill Clegg, who saw the earliest version of this novel in four chapters, and said, "Oh, this is a stunner. <laughs> so he saw the vision early. And um, it was a fear of mine that certain characters would be read in a way that was queer when what I wanted them to be read as was discovering what love was and having for them an intimate bond that is so often disallowed for, in this case, this had men, or kept secret can we talk about the <laughs> the rites of passage that cis men have that far out gay What gay men? <laughs> yes, experience? yes, it's, yeah, you, yeah. And, and the fact that they can keep that secret and we still have to bear the burden of that secret. It's like you have no, people have no idea some of the things that you all do to bond with one another that we would not do In our worst day. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I wanted it to be allowed for these men to just be kind to each other and just be soft with each other and not necessarily be read as, oh, they're in love with one another in a romantic way. No, they're in love with one another in a way that is important for their growth to be able to love other people and when it comes to Foster and Rain they are a couple they are two men who are romantically and spiritually bonded that's another thing what are the ways that people are spiritually bound franklin to me is someone who is so in need of male company that he doesn't really understand that when he finds it in foster that he has no understanding of what he's doing to Foster by not engaging with him in a way that sees him as anything other than a tool for connection. His trauma is based off of the things that men, young and old, have done to him. And he's always seeking male company. And when he finally finds it in Foster and it turns out to be romantic in a way, sexual absolutely... He can't let go of the fact that men had done this to me. When I look at a man's mouth, this is what I see. That boy died right in front of me. So it's not that he is what we would deem a kind of, uh, what is it? I don't like using the word homophobia because there's no fear. It's all just, you know, kind of deep-set hatred. It's not that. He doesn't have that. He doesn't understand himself. He doesn't understand how his past finds expansion in his relationships with other men. He doesn't understand how his loneliness and his response to his loneliness are both violent. He experienced loneliness because of violence and his own way of expressing how he moves, you know, the way that he moves through loneliness is violent. It's socially violent. It's emotionally violent. And then with Luther, Philip, and Justice, these are two boys who are first-generation free, allowed to be free for the first time, where they can decide how that relationship goes. They can see organically what happens, and they can make those mistakes and not have some so-called master saying, you can't do that because that doesn't make more slaves for me. You should be having sex. Or you can do this because it pleases whoever is in the house, right? They are allowed to do whatever they want. And it is very important for Mr. Wife to see that and allow that. I'm going long now because it's a rich question that to me is founded in what is the social capacity that people have when they're just left alone? When they're just left alone, what do they decide to do and what can they become on their own when they have the freedom to do that. And sometimes the answer is they build really strong bonds that because of their strength become more easily broken. (laughs) It could be that they are incapable of creating bonds which then makes it impossible for them to remain bonded to the earth. Or they make sustainable, healthy bonds with one another that makes it possible for them to be worshipful of the earth and to be understanding of other people in the communities in which they live.
1: The last thing that I wanted to ask you about is kind of, so near the end of the book, and this is, I guess, like maybe the the bigger spoiler, but not really. So near the end of the book, it's 1872. It's revealed that Saint and possibly many of the inhabitants of ours have kind of gotten themselves stuck back in the 1830s and 40s when they moved to the town, when they created the town. So can you talk a little bit about what that turn, that kind of, because there's a woman, Aurora, from outside of the town is like, no, this is the time that it is. Like, you don't understand (laughs) what time it is. Can you just talk a little bit about that as a reality for the characters, but also metaphorically maybe as an articulation of something that has been arrested or stopped up in them since their liberation?
2: Mm -hmm. Since their enslavement, yeah, time stopped for them once they were in the, this is language I'm borrowing from Horton Spillers, once they were in the vestibule of the Middle Passage, there is a way that being in that marginal space, which was still a space of creation, being on the, the bottom of the ship, there's still things being created, there's still stories being told, there's still songs being sang, be they sorrowful or be they to keep a kind of resistance going on board. There's still memory and there's still culture being created on that ship, which is a miracle to me. But there's a there's a freezing of time that happens, that happened on the, the slave ship. And it's a freezing of time that the book argues has to be exercised. You can't just be made free in the body, you have to be made free in all ways of living. Otherwise, you remain frozen in the vestibule of the Middle Passage. You remain frozen in the experience of enslavement. And so, Aurora's commentary on that is saying, y'all been doing whatever y'all wanted over there, but over here, this is what time it is. (laughs) This is what's going on. This is the way that we proceed into the future, that we make a future. She's not saying that saint and those and ours are wrong, but she's saying they had a misinterpretation of what they were experiencing, which is very different.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it does open up the end of the book, I think, to like a, a much broader interpretation of like how, I mean, the struggle that's been true throughout the entire book is like, how do we love? How do we become ourselves? How do we know ourselves? And how do we move forward into a future? Which and I can't give this away because it'll take us down a very <laughs> long rabbit hole, but there's only one character who manages to push herself into the future. It's a power that she has, but she pushes herself into the future, and then in like an incredible and like both heartbreaking and breathtaking act of love, rescues a descendant in the future. But as, as we wrap up, I wanted to know, what was the hardest part of writing this book? And what do you most want people to take away from it?
2: The hardest part in writing the book was indeed the length of it. <laughs> and I don't mean that in, oh, I wish I hadn't written such a long book or even the very process of... I had so many more... I had many more stories that I could have told that I wanted to tell. Things were cut. Can you imagine something was cut from this book? (laughs) It would have been longer. (laughs) and And by a significant amount, it would have been longer if those cuts were not made. The length that it is now in my opinion, is ideal. I do not like when people complain about a book being long as though they didn't pick it up and flip through it and see that it was long to begin with. That's like ordering spicy food and you know that spice isn't your thing. (laughs) So for me, the length of the book and having to make sacrifices and going as deep as I wanted because it was so, it was imperative that everyone had a voice and everyone had a rich life in the book I did not want anyone being hanged, anyone being whipped, anyone being tortured. Any. So, those enslavement, slavery is a part of the book, it is not the book. And those experiences are very muted. It is mostly within the frame of, here's how they're going to try to build ours. And I want readers to be patient. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. If it takes you a year to read the book, that's okay, Folks, like, it took me so long to finish XYZ book. What's wrong with that? You're not in school. Take as long as you want. You can read a page a day. (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to check you? Do what you got to do to finish the book. This isn't... It shouldn't feel like a punishment to read something that is demanding. And it's only demanding because it's saying, I am giving you so much. I'm giving you as much as I can. That was the challenge of writing it. I gave so much. I was tired. I was exhausted and i want readers to not feel as though they are in competition with their traumatized childhood read the book at your own pace you know if you don't know a word look it up it's okay you can even just skip over a word you will understand what is going on with the book trust me <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's my final word on that
1: <laughs> i love that We've been speaking to Philip B. Williams, author most recently of Hours. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. I am honored.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlad.